When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. This week, Army veteran and audience favorite Jen Peoples joins me to discuss a personal family experience around COVID-19 and also the Afghan civilian extraction operation, what went well and what didn't. Please note that neither Jen nor I are medical professionals or experts. What we say in this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. If you have questions or concerns around COVID-19 or vaccination, I encourage you to speak to your doctor or other qualified medical professionals. Links to COVID-19 resources are included in the description. All right, so with me today is Jen Peebles. Hey, Jen. Hey, how's it going? Good. So you're a longtime favorite. Folks are always asking for both you and Phil. So I'm sure folks will be happy to hear you on today. I'm happy to be here. So what are we drinking tonight? I have two partial bottles, right? So I'm finishing up a rosé. And it's funny that you asked this. And I swear I did not ask Jen to ask me this. But I picked up this Argentinian thing called a Torrentes. And it's Colors del Sol, right? So I guess that's Colors of the Sun. And I would describe this thing as having a hint of the back of a stamp with (laughs) notes of the pith of a grapefruit. (laughs) And I know it sounds really strange, but it works. (laughs) And it took me like a glass and a half before I was like, it's not just weird. I actually like it. Like, okay, yes, I'm going to say I like this. It's very strange, but I like it. And I, at one point also described it as like sucking on a book binding. (laughs) It has this very strange, I don't know, antique paper scent and flavor to it. I've never tasted anything quite like it. And it's, it's supposed to have citrus notes in it, but definitely hits like a, like I said, like the pith of a, of a grapefruit. And it's not very, it's not dry or anything. And a friend of mine likes sweet wines and he actually liked it. So Colores del Sol, and it's a Torrentes from Argentina. And it's very different. And I give it a thumbs up. Wow. Yeah. I have to say your tastes in wine are kind of bizarre. (laughs) Well, this is a bizarre wine, but right now I'm just polishing off the rosé and then I'm going to go ahead and finish that bottle off because just to let folks know, it's partial bottles here from a couple different dinners. I'm not like polishing off two bottles of wine. But, you know, it's okay if you are because we're all sitting at home these days, right? no, No shame. So what are you drinking? So, yeah, I really can't talk trash about somebody that may be drinking an unusual flavored wine because I'm a big fan of India Pale Ale. So I am drinking an India Pale Ale called Sold Out from the Freetail Brewing Company in San Antonio, Texas. So is it Sold Out, like S-O-U-L? Yes. And then Doubt. Out. Instead yep. of Sold Out, that's pretty cute. 
Yeah, the, these guys have some. It's like an atheist. It's just a beer here or some kind of, what did you say, an ale? Yeah, it's an India Pale Ale. So IPA. But made for atheists, I guess. With uh, I out. guess so. I, I saw it, you know, in H-E-B and I thought, well, I have to try that. So anyway, and oh. it's good. It's not quite as bitter as a lot of IPAs, but it's, it's a well-hopped IPA, kind of light tasting, although it does have 6.8% alcohol. So I may be very talkative by the end of this. No, that's fine. I think one of these, the first one I'm doing, the rosé, is a Spanish wine. This one's 11.5. But the weird one, that Torrente's, I think is like a 13. Oh, wow. I don't know. Wine doesn't really, I I, I do, I get mellow. (laughs) Well, see, I've been getting up really early in the morning and running a lot lately. So I haven't been drinking much in the evenings. So this will probably knock me on my ass tonight. It sucks that your running is starting to cut into your drinking. Oh, I know. I think you have a problem. (laughs) I know. Priorities, right? Come on. You may have a running problem. I know. (laughs) (laughs) You've heard of uh, Hash House Harriers? I have not. It's a running type of event, very much an adults only kind of running thing. They actually build themselves as a drinking club with a running problem. I'm not the first person to notice that as a thing. Yeah, I wouldn't want to take a child to a hash event. Okay. (laughs) Do they drink and run or do they? No, the the running typically comes first, but the parties get a little rowdy afterwards. Okay. Now I'm wondering if there's all kinds of clubs, you know, like running and harder things than just drinking. I'm sure that there's something out there. Well, I was thinking, I just, and and not magic mushrooms, but I was just looking at this thing earlier today about mushrooms and it was about foraging, I guess, like that kind of eat the weeds site Mm -hmm. stuff. But this was um, something called chicken of the woods. And now I know what it is. And it's like a giant mushroom that grows commonly throughout the U.S. And apparently it's delicious and you can saute it, cook it up and even though it does have some lookalikes, there's very, very telltale signs of what it is and what it isn't. So it's, you know, so obvious that I would feel comfortable picking one and not feeling like I was going to poison myself. Wow. But now, now I'm on a kick and I'm just like, oh, I have to find this and try to eat it. <laughs> it just looks delicious. <laughs> so I, mean, I like mushrooms anyway, right? Yeah, they say it's really delicious. People love it. They go out and they harvest it and they hunt it. And I mean, imagine they do that with all the mushrooms. That's probably not an odd thing, but this thing looks pretty easy to find. And I'm just like, now I'm, now I've got a mission. Yeah, I'll have to tell my son about that. He's really into mushrooms these days. Oh, I love like that. Like the, the edible ones, not the. no no I totally understand (laughs) speaking of family yes so you have have a family story (laughs) yeah so last night was interesting my wife's siblings she comes from a large family right so she's got four siblings and three of them are anti-vaxxers one of her brothers is definitely not an anti-vaxxer and is totally running out of patience with the rest of them that are but her two sisters and her other brother are all adamantly opposed to taking the vaccine for various reasons. And so we got into a, a little text message discussion last night in which they detailed all of the reasons why they're anti-vax. A lot of it boils down to it's a, a toxic mix of QAnon conspiracy crap, standard anti-vax tropes, and just a fundamental misunderstanding of how the immune system works and how to stop a respiratory virus. So, for example, one of her sisters was saying, 
well, you know, all this stuff is just common sense and people just need to take responsibility for their own stuff. Of course, you should wash your hands and keep yourself clean and all this stuff and eat a healthy diet. And I was reading this and I was telling my wife, did you tell her that washing your hands actually doesn't stop a respiratory virus? What stops a respiratory virus is you get a vaccine for it, or you have something in the way of inhaling the microorganisms, like, I don't know, a mask, because they're really against the mask mandates. And of course, they are losing their minds over the vaccine policies that are, are rolling out in a lot of, uh, you know, for a lot of employers. Just before you even go on, there's a couple of stats I wanted to just hit earlier this week. It was reported that we have now seen one in 500 Americans die from COVID. Mm -hmm. And there's apparently a really growing police movement, including the unions, uh, against any kind of vaccine mandates for police. Now, if these are people that interact with the public, they will be laying hands on you. They will definitely mm-hmm. be within six feet of you and closer. This is a public servant that it has close direct contact with the public, might even be doing CPR on someone at some point. Right. And the other thing that was unbelievable was COVID has killed more police in 2021 than anything else. Right. Apparently the blue lives don't matter even to the blue lives themselves. Now I feel bad because I'm sure there are police who are in favor of taking the vaccine and and even mandating it. I don't mean to imply that every one of them is, but it just seems like the more conservative factions of law and order and refund the police, those are the same folks who are going to be against the vaccines. It's the people who are blue lives matter the hardest who are probably going to be anti-protecting their lives when it comes to COVID. Yeah, exactly. I think I was in maybe New Jersey, but just this week, a doctor who's also an elected representative switched from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party because he just can't take the anti-vaxxer stuff anymore. He said it's so rampant, you know, on the right that he's just done with it. It's like, okay, I know that the anti-vaxxer movement has always had a significant representation from some crunchy granola left-wingers that are all about, oh, well, I believe in my natural immunity and I'll just eat more vitamin D or whatever. Right. But it does seem like the uh, resistance to the COVID vaccine has a distinctly right-wing feel to it. And recently, a fifth right-wing radio host who was promoting anti-vax and COVID conspiracy nonsense on his radio show, a fifth individual like this recently died. So, you know, the death of one rabid right-winger especially this particular guy, I think his name is Enyard or something like that. He's, I think, in Colorado. He used to play Another One Bites the Dust as he read the names of gay men who died from AIDS. The world will not miss this guy. I don't mourn his loss at all. But I think about all of the people he probably influenced out there to not take a vaccine. You know, how many of them will end up dying or worse yet, be a vector for spreading this disease to someone else. Yeah, And that's the real shame. Fortunately, most of my direct friends, like the people that I've chosen to be around, are in favor of vaccinating and have been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. I know some people who were hospitalized with COVID prior to the vaccine being available. I have at least one coworker who died from it. And I know people who have family members who have died from it, both at work and like online friends and people in my social circle. But I also do still have a couple of folks who are not going to do it, who are not going to get the vaccine and who are not really people who can't get it. I don't know what to say to people either, because after that conversation last night, 
and listening to the conspiracy theories, the idea that this is all overblown, that it's just not that serious. It's just like a bad cold or a flu. I mean, I was walking around practically pulling my hair out because one of her sisters was saying this and I'm like, she's obviously never had the flu. And that's probably because people around her get the flu vaccine. So, you know, you're welcome. But to just write it off as, oh, it's just a bad flu. If you'd ever had the flu, the flu is so miserable. It's almost indescribable. I haven't had it in over 20 years. My ex went to the hospital with his ex-wife for the flu. I mean, the last time I had the flu, it turned out that I guess the vaccine that season was not a good match. So I got the A strain and then had just recovered from that. Um, It was feeling pretty much normal when I came down with the B strain that year. And the A strain was devastating. I was sick as a dog for three and a half days. And I finally ventured out on the, the fourth day because I had to go out and get some more cold meds and something to drink. And I was looking for my car keys. I couldn't find my keys. And I started retracing my steps from when I had come home a few days before that, three and a half days before that. And I found my keys still in the front door. So when I came home, I was so sick that I didn't even remember to take my keys out of the front door. So they were just sitting there in the lock in my front door on the outside um, for three and a half days. I mean, my letter carrier must have been very confused about what was going on there because my uh, mailbox was like right outside the door. You know, that's how sick I was. It's really no joke. Uh, One of my cousins died from the flu and she was not that old. She didn't have, you know, heart disease or lung disease or anything like that. She just had a bad case of the flu and laid down on her couch uh, one afternoon to take a nap because she was very fatigued and she didn't wake up. And so this is the other thing is that people think that they have some kind of stomach bug and they think it's the flu. Most of the time for adults, flu doesn't cause nausea and diarrhea and stuff. It typically is like respiratory symptoms and dry cough, profound fatigue and muscle aches. You feel like you would have to get better to die. And we've had variations, right? So we've had mutations on that thing that came out like, I remember swine flu, I remember bird flu, you know, so we've had variations that were particularly nasty. And the difference between those flu variations and COVID-19 is that COVID-19 is way more um, infectious and dangerous to people. You're much more likely to die or have some kind of disability as a result of COVID infection than you are from the flu. It's about how infectious it is, how contagious mm-hmm. it is. Well, and, and then and people have talked about how, you know, it's going to mutate just like the flu mutates. And sometimes we right. get these really horrible strains. Listening to in-laws talk about this last night and talking about, you know, it's been overblown and it's not that big a deal. You know, you should just go about your life and take normal precautions and you'll be fine. And their idea of normal precautions is not wearing a mask and going to the bar whenever they feel like it pretending it doesn't exist. And so one of my questions was, do they think all of the medical personnel in the country are in on this so-called hoax? This thing is not really real. Do they think think the medical people are are they in on it? How about the over 600,000 Americans who died from it? Are they in on the hoax? You know, and they write that off as, oh, well, they died from something else. Yeah, they don't believe they don't believe any of the stats, any of the facts, any of the information. And I I saw one recently where a woman who was an anti-vax kind of, you know, movement leader, whatever, I don't know how that all fits together, but she had a following and they Mm -hmm. showed up outside the hospital protesting because they wanted the hospital to give her up to their care. There was this really weird implication in the article based on the way that these people were reacting that they believed that the 
hospital might actually do something to harm or kill her. And she did die in the hospital. I'm pretty sure they're going to start that as well, thinking that, you know, the hospital is like killing these anti-vax people. And it is so freakish to me that they think that this is a whole global thing. Like I had whole teams of people for weeks and weeks gone in India Mm -hmm. when this thing was hitting India and And it was horrible. They couldn't even get the vaccine and they're manufacturing it for the rest of the world. It was obscene. Not only that, but that's how we got the Delta variant. They couldn't get access to the vaccine. So the the virus was burning through their population. And what do we get? We get a Delta variant. The original COVID-19 virus that got loose in the world, you know, basically one person would infect like maybe two other people, you know, if they didn't take any kind of precaution because that it's a level of the infectivity of the virus. The Delta variant, its level of infectivity is like six or seven. You're much more likely to infect someone else if you have the Delta variant. And that's the dominant strain in the U.S. right now. And every unvaccinated person is making it more likely that we'll get an even more virulent strain of the virus because that's how it works. And, you know, this whole people in on the hoax, it's not, not a big deal. It really pissed me off because a little less than a month ago, I went back to Alabama to spend some time with my brother who had been in the hospital and he had been released from the hospital into hospice care. And when I went back to Alabama, one of the first things that happened was I landed the plane now. It was like, oh crap, I forgot all of my health insurance cards and pharmacy cards and all that stuff. So if anything happens and I get sick, I got to like call home and get my wife to take a picture and send it to me or something. And then I thought, what the hell would I do with that anyway? There are no hospital beds or ICU beds available in Alabama right now. There were literally none available. When my brother went into the hospital this last time, he went in because he had fluid around his heart. And so he needed to be in a cardiac intensive care unit. They found one bed available at a hospital that was like an hour and a half away from where he lived. And that was very fortunate because, you know, it was a CICU bed that he needed and they had one. So he was able to get the care he needed there. So when they released him back for home hospice care, it was with the understanding that, you know, a hospice nurse would visit him a couple of times a week and you know, he would have appropriate medication and everything. Well, a couple of nights before I left, he woke me up at like one o'clock in the morning and he's like, I'm really hurt and I need some help. So I got up and I was trying to help him. He was having really severe chest pain. It was not a heart condition or anything like that. This had happened before. And so we knew that what he needed was some really strong pain meds. And I didn't have any opioids other than some minimal stuff. Didn't have any morphine. So we ended up calling EMS. And first thing that happened was the head EMS guy that showed up, that EMT did not wear a mask when he walked in. And so I asked him, where was his mask? He insisted that he didn't have to wear it because he'd had shots. I've had shots doesn't really tell me a whole lot about the guy. But in any case, his first thing when he walked in the door was him telling us what he was not going to do. We had actually coordinated with the hospice nurse to get a hospital bed brought down to the emergency department for my brother. Mm -hmm. Because when you go in in an ambulance, first of all, the ambulance crew can't leave until you're admitted to the ER. And you might sit in the ER for hours before they can even admit you to the emergency department. The emergency departments in Alabama at that time looked like a combat support hospital in the middle of a mass casualty event. And I know what that looks like. So I can tell you that's what that looked like. There were people lying on the floor, people propped up in chairs that looked like they were going to fall over any time. 
people lying in gurneys in the hallways. And in a lot of cases, there were EMTs sitting next to people that they had brought there that they couldn't leave, you know, until they had them admitted. And those are the people that were the EMTs that were allowed to offload their patients and bring them in. Some of them were sitting in the ambulances waiting outside. And my brother had said, look, I can't stand to lay on a gurney for however long it takes them to admit me. So we had coordinated for the nearest ER for them to bring on a regular hospital bed down to put him in and that they would go ahead and start pain medication treatment until they could you know, assess him and, and admit him to the ED. That EMT said, I'm not taking him there. I, I'll only take him wherever my dispatch tells me. And that might be out of state. In the end, my brother said, I'm not going. I'm not getting in the ambulance with you. So I tell my brother, if you need transport to the hospital, I'll transport you myself. And then if we don't like the way it looks, we'll walk out. We ended up having to manage his pain. And so you can imagine what that's like, knowing that whatever happens, you have to deal with it with whatever you have because there's no more help available. It was literally, okay, you can have another gabapentin in 12 minutes. You can have another methadone in 32 minutes. And we'll get you, you know, the next dose of medication in 52 minutes or whatever. And that's how we had to manage his pain until we got it under control. And at the same time, we're trying to get a hold of the hospice medical director to call in a prescription for morphine to the only 24-hour pharmacy in the area, which was going to be an hour's drive away. So I was going to have to go and get that if we could get it. We couldn't get a hold of the the, uh, medical director for the hospice. So we couldn't get the morphine until the next day. Yeah, this is what we're down to. You know, I'm not sitting here saying anti-vaxxers, people that are refusing a COVID-19 vaccine caused my brother's death because he did die a little over a week after that. They didn't cause his death. They didn't hasten his death. He was in hospice care. This was not unexpected. What they did was they diminished his quality of life at the end. And I hope that when it's their time to die, that someone has more compassion for them and is more responsible about taking care of them than what they showed to my brother because that's a pretty horrible thing to happen to you at the end of your life. Thankfully, we were able to get the morphine. And so when he did finally die, it was, you know, after spending time with people who loved him and, you know, he died in his sleep at home. In the end, it wasn't terrible, but there were some moments when it was really terrible before that. And for that, I do blame people who are just refusing to get the vaccine and who are claiming this is all a hoax and it's overblown. He should have been able to go to an emergency department and get morphine for his pain that night. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those hospitals are crowded because, you know, like they say, most of the folks that are in there right now are the non-vaccinated folks. And so, yeah, I have a I have a bone to pick with people who are refusing a COVID-19 vaccine. And my next door neighbor, COVID-19 vaccines have been readily available for months now. It's not hard to find a vaccine now. It's not like back in in the spring when everybody was scrambling to find where, you know, where's a a vaccine clinic. So, I mean, you were planning to drive to, where were you going to go all the way out to Blanco County or something like that? Well, I was supposed to be getting the J&J vaccine Mm -hmm. and it was literally that morning that they put a hold on that vaccine because of reports of complications and they did eventually clear it. But by then we hooked up another vaccine and I had to drive out to college station Mm -hmm. um, to get one. So that's like a couple hours that we had to drive. And then, you know, that's a two shot (laughs) Moderna. So I had to go out there twice and get those shots. You know? Yeah. So that was early on. If people were, we were all trying to get the vaccine, you know, as soon as we could, wherever we could, you know, it hasn't been that way for a long time. For months now, vaccines have been readily available. You can walk into HEB or any pharmacy and just get a vaccine. 
Mm-hmm. And so my next door neighbor, she's like, well, you know, I've been waiting because I, I wasn't sure about the long term side effects and all this stuff. And I'm like, the vaccine itself leaves your system within 72 hours. And what it leaves behind is the instructions to make the antibodies. That's the whole point. You get the antibodies, you don't get the disease. So while she's dithering around waiting to find out about long term side effects for the vaccine, she gets COVID-19. So she was sick for two weeks with COVID-19. When she finally recovered from that, of course, there's a long-term period where you're just weak and you feel like you're not quite yourself. And so she's still recovering from that. And then she's like, well, you know, now I think maybe I don't need the vaccine. And I was like, what are you talking about? You, What do you mean you don't need the vaccine? She's like, well, you know, I have natural immunity now. And she was saying that her doctor told her that she wouldn't need to take the vaccine. And I said, well, have you had your antibody titers done? Do you know for sure that you actually have the antibodies? Well, no, I haven't had that test done yet. The doctor said, come back in a few months and we'll check it. So it's like, oh, great. I've got a, basically a plague rat living next door. <laughs> You know, I'm sorry, but I, I'm, I'm out of sympathy for people. I'm out of patience for this. These people are prolonging this and they're doing it. And they're saying, oh, but you can't make me take a vaccine because if you make me take a vaccine, what's next? I'm like, oh, well, I can tell you what's next. It's forcing women to remain pregnant when they don't want to be. There are people who are saying you shouldn't force people to get the vaccine. And I'm like, well, first of all, no one is talking about tying somebody down to a gurney and putting a needle in their arm. That is not right. going to happen. That has never happened. I mean, Yes, there, there are horror stories in our history. This nation has things to be not proud of when it comes to medicine sometimes, especially with particular groups of people. Uh, this is not one of those things. It is going to be, quote, mandated in a similar way that other vaccines are mandated. The only difference is you generally get all those other vaccines when you're little. So we don't mm-hmm. have to worry about you bringing something into a restaurant because you've probably been vaccinated already. So with this, since it's hitting and you're an adult, you kind of have to go and get that vaccine because we didn't have this before and we have it now. If we had had it when you were little, you would have gotten the vaccine when you were little with all your other vaccines and we wouldn't even be having this conversation. And what's weird is that you talk to people and you say, okay, so did you skip the polio vaccine then? And they're like, oh no, I would never do that. I mean, you know, because they've seen the pictures of, of kids in iron lungs. They've never actually seen a kid in an iron lung because everybody's vaccinated for polio. We haven't had a spontaneous case of polio in this country since 1979. The last time we had a case of it in this country was in 1993 when a traveler brought one, brought a case of it home, you know, an unvaccinated traveler. We don't see kids in iron lungs anymore because we all lined up and we took the fucking vaccine. We eradicated it. Right. My aunt was in a wheelchair her entire life. Probably, I think she was, I don't know, like maybe nine years old when she got polio and she never walked her whole life. Yeah. I had an uncle who had one leg shorter than the other because he had polio when he was a kid and that one leg atrophied. I don't know of anyone who didn't have somebody in their family who'd been affected by polio. And the thing about it is COVID-19 is a lot more likely, like by about an order of magnitude, more likely to cause death or disability than polio. For most people, a polio infection is a minor gastrointestinal event and your body clears it and you're done. It never gets into your central nervous system and causes any kind of problem. In a very small percentage of people, it causes, you know, some kind of central nervous system symptom. And in a very small fraction of those people, it causes paralysis. And sometimes that paralysis is permanent. And sometimes it resolves with some degree of disability afterwards. That's the thing people don't get. It's like this COVID-19 thing that we're dealing with is not a trivial thing. It's not just a common cold. And we don't really know what the long-term effects of having the virus is going to be for the people that have survived it. 
So yay for your natural immunity, but what price are you going to pay for that down the line? It's, it's kind of unbelievable that we're living in these times. The path out of this is so easy. It's like we have a safe, effective vaccine. We have like multiple safe, effective vaccines. Just pick one. It's dystopian. It, it really is. And I keep thinking, okay, well, since most of the people who are so opposed to getting a COVID vaccine are right-wingers, maybe they'll just natural selection themselves off the planet. You know, you know? Whenever I see, you know, one, like you're talking about the leadership and the radio hosts, and when one of them dies, you know, my thought is, okay, well, you're, you're slowly silencing yourselves. With the police, it just blows my mind because oh, yeah. their reactions to, you know, an unarmed black man show how terrified they are of a black man. Mm-hmm. But what's killing them is COVID and they are protesting having to get vaccinated. Somewhere in New York, there was um, a hospital that had to stop delivering babies because the labor and delivery department, too many of the nurses in there protested about being forced to vaccinate because their employer said, hey, you either get a vaccination or you can't work here anymore. They refused vaccination. And so the hospital said, well, regrettably, you know, yeah. we have to shut this down. And so right-wingers were complaining and saying, hey, you had to shut down a labor and delivery unit because you know, of this vaccine mandate. And I was like, so you want unvaccinated people working around pregnant women and, and newborn infants? It's weird, though. It's weird that they blame the mandate instead of yeah. irresponsible medical personnel. I'm actually glad they shut that place down because if it's such a hotbed of, of nonsense like that, Mandates don't shut down your maternity ward. Yeah. <laughs> People shut down maternity wards. That's right. We had to, had to end the conversation with the in-laws last night by telling them that, oh, we have to get off the phone because there are some undocumented immigrants running through the backyard and we need to go chase them down. They live in Wisconsin and a few of them have this image in their head that Texas is this dystopian hellscape being overrun by COVID-infected undocumented immigrants. That was particularly insidious to have horrible COVID policy in the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. And when your cases spike, blame immigrants. Which is manifestly untrue. And we know this because if you look at where the cases spiked, it's like not on the border. It's where there's an international airport. It's just infuriating. (laughs) It's just infuriating racism. It makes me so angry. Well, yeah, it plays on the dirty immigrant trope that people like to latch on to. And speaking of immigrants, right, we have refugees that are coming in from Afghanistan now. The same people who are saying that we need to be there to support Afghanistan, who were supportive of Trump removing us from Afghanistan, but who now want to stay in a war with Afghanistan for whatever reason and feel like we have to support the people of Afghanistan are also the same people freaking out that we have refugees coming in from Afghanistan and they don't want them to come here from Afghanistan. Yeah, we're supposed to save every one of them, but not in my backyard. So yeah, they're refusing to you know, host them in their communities. And Can you guys spare us all the pearl clutching over refugees from Afghanistan? Because they put themselves on the line to help us over there. And this is the least we can do. We have a way to vet them to make sure that we're not letting in terrorists or anything like that. Frankly, our biggest terrorist problem is not from Afghanistan refugees. It's from our homegrown terrorists. Yeah, but they're not going to they're not going to touch that. Right. The representatives will not touch that. They will give their nod and wink approval to it all. They'll feed into it. The leadership knows that it's useful to keep these people Mm -hmm. strung along. They don't want to alienate the terrorists, you know, violent, racist base. 
So they have to kind of play along with it and not really condemn it. But at the same time, you just sort of have to distance yourself enough to say that you have plausible deniability if anything should erupt. When things start to close in on you and it looks like somebody with the authority to do something about it is going to get access to your phone records from January 6th, you can start threatening the telecom companies that, oh, you better not give up that information because, you know, next time we're in power, we're going to remember. Yeah, very subtle. Yeah. And I'm like, why are these people (laughs) immediately under investigation for obstruction of justice here? Yeah. Don't turn over my phone records or else I will use my political power to damage your company. I mean, it's like, okay, why don't you just say you're afraid that someone's going to see your phone records? And how many of these people have said to someone else who was legitimately saying, hey, I don't I don't want, you know, some random search of my person or property. And how many of them have said, well, if you don't have anything to hide, what are you worried about? They were doing their best to dig up dirt, right? There's all this stuff that came out about Trump trying to dig up dirt on people. God only knows what they have on some of these turncoat Republicans who have just sort of done a 180 and went from criticizing Trump to literally overnight getting on the fan bandwagon. Mm -hmm. If we ever get a hold of those dossiers, they're going to make the dossier that was the controversial thing with the Mueller stuff look like nothing because there is something wicked in somebody's files. And I'm really interested in the new book by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa that comes out next week, Carol. This one's particularly interesting because it details some steps that General Milley, you know, Mark Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, China was on a razor's edge. They really thought that Trump was going to start a war with them to use that as an excuse to cling to power. And so they were unusually rattled. And Mark Milley took some steps to basically make sure that Trump and his cronies had to follow the exact process that's necessary to use nuclear weapons. I feel my heart rate going up when I think about this. As somebody that works with teams, that works with people, that works in a you know global company, I cannot believe how many people do not see that Trump was like a complete incompetent. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean like that as a mental diagnosis, like he can't sign a contract or whatever. I just mean that right. the guy from a workplace standpoint right. would not be competent to do anything. Right. Just from a, a general business standpoint, any kind of professional work environment. Yeah, the guy's completely incompetent. He would not last at my company. Like there's no way they would just be like, okay, what is this? Who hired this person? He's completely incapable. And I, I have to think that his entire life must have just been padded by people who were far more competent that he just simply abused and ran through like a hot knife through butter. Because the only people that I know that are like super loyal seem to be the folks that he was just paying off in a huge way who had access to everything like that accountant. The guy is a nightmare from a hiring standpoint. If he didn't inherit a ton of money so that he could continually bankrupt himself and still recover and that he could afford to abuse his workers and just hire new ones whenever they left, there's no way that he's competently running a company. There is simply no way. Right. Yeah. He was just the figurehead that got propped up and somebody else was actually making the real decisions. There was so much stuff that came out of his mouth, you know, that I was just yeah. like, I did he, did, did he just say that? Like, did that just come out of his mouth? Because it was just unbelievable. 
Yeah, the kind of grandiose crap that you would expect from a third grader who's known for stretching the truth and or outright lying a lot. uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine having somebody come in and explain what happened. And then that afternoon, they're saying something totally different happened or it didn't happen. I saw him change course the same day where he would put out a story and his base would be defending it that morning. And then that afternoon, he was saying something different because it wasn't playing well. And now all of a sudden his base was defending something different. I had a conversation with somebody about his, the tape of grab him by the knee. I was talking to somebody about that. I I said something about his serial sexual assault. And she's like, well, it's not serial sexual assault because he said they let him. And I said, if you let somebody, that means they've already done it. You have to get consent from a stranger before you grope them. If you're Mm -hmm. groping them and they don't stop you, you've already assaulted them because you needed their consent before you touched them, right? Right. It it doesn't matter if they don't stop you. That doesn't make it not an assault. What makes it an assault is that you don't know this person and you walked up and you grabbed them and you didn't get permission first because you have to have consent before you grab somebody's genitals. And if you don't know the person, then there's not some sort of prior consent where you have a relationship where this is just the stuff you guys do together. So this is a situation where he did not have consent. He walked up and he groped somebody, whether they stopped him, didn't stop him, screamed, didn't scream, fought, didn't fight, doesn't matter. He sexually assaulted people and he did it serially according to what he's saying. When that sank in, the person on the other side of the conversation said, well, he said it was just locker room talking that none of that stuff really happened. And I was like, okay, wait a second. (laughs) You are the same person who was just a moment ago agreeing that he did it and trying to say that it was okay that he did it. Then when I explained to you that, no, that's a sexual assault. And then when you understand that that's a sexual assault, suddenly you have changed your story to he never did it. And when I told them that they did that, like literally within the span of seconds, when I told them that that's what they just did, they said, no, I didn't. Yeah. I literally said to them, we have to end this conversation because I don't even know how to have a conversation with somebody that is right. saying this, that, that, that is doing what you just did. If this is what we're going to do, that you're going to change the story, that you're going to change the argument and just flip your premise on its head when I point out that it's problematic. And then when I call you on it, you're going to tell me that you didn't just do that. How do we even have a conversation? We yeah. can't. And so we just had to go talk about something else because I was like, we can't, we cannot talk about this. This is not okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like they they tore a page out of 1984. We've always been at war with East Asia. (laughs) But I mean, Trump did the same thing though. He would say something earlier in the day. I can't remember what it was, but I remember freaking out and being like, this morning, he said a different thing than what he's saying now in the afternoon. And that was like a particularly egregious one. Usually it would be like within a day or a couple days, but this one was like the same day. And I was just like, okay, I can't even keep up with the lies and the the way that he just will not acknowledge. He will say anything before he'll say, I made a mistake or I was wrong about this. One of my Texas reps posted on Facebook some sort of chart about the weather with the storm in that, you know, the the thing that hit Louisiana. Originally, they thought it was going to hit more of Texas. And so he would be posted something about it, you know, coming toward Texas. And I was like, why don't you just get a Sharpie and draw? You know, and and just fix it. Right. Because isn't that how you do the weather? Let let me try to segue here because it's going to be really painful, awkward segue. But let's see if I can do this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My takeaway is that I would vote for Biden every day and twice on Sundays over Trump. Mm-hmm. The thing I like best about Biden is that he shares power and that he's willing to appoint people like he's willing to appoint trans people and black people and women and Hispanic people. And like he just, yes, he is an old white man. And yes, there are times he says old white man things. And yes, I cringe, but he will share power and he will make space that is deserved by people who traditionally are kept out of power. And that is the thing that to me is kind of worth its weight in gold And it's not that I think Biden is awesome and he's all progressive and he's not racist and he's not sexist. Like, yeah, man, he's got the problems of the old white guy that we all, you know, expect that stereotypical problematic old generation stuff. He's got it. But like I say, it's about the people that he will open the door for um, and say that they also deserve a seat at the table. And that's what we need. And when you look at administration photos of Trump, unless it's like a special occasion day where he's actually meeting with somebody for some specific reason, you know, like whenever they're doing like a bill signing or something, it's all just white men, the whole mm-hmm. thing, the whole whole images and so many racists and so many sexists. And it was just horrendous. And so... I posted something uh, on my Facebook page that said, would vote Biden over Trump any day? Not even a question. That being said, this Afghanistan withdrawal is giving me creepy feeling here. I did not like some of the stuff that I saw. I responded to it in my head in my role as a project manager, as a risk manager, while I was watching it, I was looking at things and saying, this cannot be correct. This Mm -hmm. has to be a mistake. And I posted some things about it. And I sent you a note and I said, I want to give my perspective on what I saw and the things that went through my head. And then the reason I wanted you to come and talk about this is that you have 26 years in the military. And I felt like you could let me know which things I was on target with, which things I was too harsh on, what the issues were. Because most people were willing to say any event could be better, right? You can always improve things. There was one guy who was just like, no, this was the most perfect, most beautiful, you know, ever in the history of the military. And Biden is not made no mistakes. And I'm like, dude, that's not that 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 is not correct. I mean, You may want to dispute whether I'm being too hard or not hard enough or, you know, what you think was not good, what you think was good. But there is no way that some of the things I saw were good. Let me just tell like what I saw and what concerned me when I was looking at it, like from a risk management standpoint. And you tell me from a military standpoint, um, you know, the part that I don't understand what I would need to understand or if you think, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So The first thing that I saw was people falling to their death from airplanes, which Mm -hmm. reminded me grotesquely way too much of Mm 9-11. When I saw those bodies dropping from the planes, hitting the ground, you know, I, it, it was that same sick feeling I had when I saw the images on the news after 9-11, when they started to come out, the more detailed images of people leaping from the buildings or falling from the buildings, whatever the hell it was, looked to me like they were jumping, but it was that same horrible thing. And the first thing I thought was, 
I would not want to be the person in charge of this operation while that is what's showing on the news. Yeah. That's a nightmare. That is a huge PR problem that you've got on your hands. And I don't mean to downplay the humanitarian problem of people falling from planes to their death, but there is no way that there should have been people on those planes hanging onto the outside as they're taking off, falling to their deaths as these American evacuations are happening. That's just not okay on any level. So what's your response on that one? Well, first of all, let me tell you that Army doctrine requires us to capture our lessons learned. And so all of this will be examined carefully in every mistake that was made. That will all be fully documented and it will be available um, at Fort Leavenworth. There is literally a place called the Center for Army Lessons Learned and every mistake we make is documented there. And let me just say, I mean, I know I'm, I'm asking you to talk, but let me just say that I actually spoke about that in the thread. I yeah. said that this is what you do, right? This is what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have an event like this, when something goes wrong, you stop and you say, not blaming people, but saying, right. how did this happen? What could we have done differently to make this not happen? And the answer is never nothing. It just happens, right? You always, right. there's always something that you could do that could have mitigated something. And so when you're doing risk management, when you're doing project management, when you're going and doing the lessons learned or like what we call it at work, a retrospective, you are literally mm-hmm. sitting there with your team saying, what did not go well for this project for the last two weeks? What is it that didn't go well? And how do we fix it so that it's not a pain point going forward? You do not want people falling from planes to their death on TV in future projects in the military. You don't want that to happen again. So the question right. is, how did it happen this time? And what do we have to do next time so that we don't have this on TV? <laughs> Besides yeah. and- not, not letting cameras in. <laughs> Well, and, and, you know, and that's not the answer because that cameras are going to be there. And so not having been on the ground from my Monday morning quarterback perspective, what it looks like to me is that the unit on the ground that was responsible for sequencing the passengers into each plane, they lost control of the crowd. And so that's the other thing is you have to have control of the crowd there so that when you board the flight, the people who are going to board that plane, they know in advance that's their plane, they're getting on it. And if you have not been told that's your plane, you're not getting on it. It doesn't mean you won't get on a plane. It just means not that one. And you certainly can't go run out there and grabbing onto the plane and trying to hang on. And so there's that. And then, of course, there's an element of security. Having people running around capable of coming up on the side of the plane and, and grabbing onto the plane, trying to hang on. Obviously, that was not secure. So, you know, those are two things is, you know, crowd control and, and just basic airport security. Looking at what they had to deal with there, there were only about 2,000 troops in Afghanistan initially. And that's really not enough to secure that. And so, of course, the Biden administration brought in some additional troops to, you know, plus up the few troops that were on the ground. Subsequent takeoffs of planes did not have that same thing happening. I mean, that's an obvious thing that, you know, when you start something like this, you have to control the crowd. You have to give people enough information so they understand when they are going to get out. What you're describing um, from a non-military perspective, and I'm sure it works the same in the military, but I'm just saying that like outside of the military, what we would call this would be number one, resource management, which is what I talked Mm -hmm. about on the thread. I said there was a resource management problem because somebody didn't have enough resources. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what you're describing, right? You're saying they should have had more people there to control the crowd and they had not enough people. And what I pointed out on the thread was the fact that they went back 
and pulled more troops and sent more troops back shows there was a problem because you don't pull more resources and put more resources onto it unless something's going wrong. So you had a problem, you recognized the problem, you looked at how to address the problem and you sent more troops to make the problem stop, which it did. Like you say, you didn't see many more (laughs) images like that. Um, There were still some crowd issues, but you didn't see those images like you saw the first day or so of the evacuation. And that is how you handle a mistake or a problem in some sort of an effort like that. And so that was kind of what I was pointing out on the thread. I'm like, I've not, you know, the fact that he requested more resources means that initially there was a resource management problem. The other thing is when you're talking about making sure that people understand things, right? So I heard that people were like sometimes getting flyers or something. And like you said, the information wasn't understandable, wasn't comprehensive. So Mm -hmm. communication, huge, huge issue in running a project. Communication is huge. And when you have issues with translation, when you have issues with that many people and, you know, people that are like different levels of education, different ages, in a different culture. Yes, you have challenges, but I look at it and it's like we had 20 years in that region. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like knowing that place 20 years, we should have had a little better handle on some of these things. Like communication is confusing and I can see all these things that we confuse it. But then I think we've been working in there for 20 years with these people. And part of it, too, is in, in lots of people that, you know, are smarter about Afghanistan than I am have commented on the fact that the failure in Afghanistan, it wasn't actually a military failure. It was a, a failure to understand the culture and, and understand some of the, the motivations behind why people do things in that region. Isn't that an intelligence issue? It's partly intelligence, but it even goes beyond that. It's basically our own ethnocentrism walking in there thinking that we're going to turn Afghanistan into a representative democracy. I mean, that was out of reach from the beginning. And that's because most of Afghanistan is still a very, you know, tribal country. And I don't say that as a negative thing. It's like, but that's where the people's primary allegiance is, is to whatever tribe they belong to. You're not going to walk in and sweep that away in, you know, one year or five years or 10 or even 20 years. It just doesn't happen that way. It, you know, a lot of it was our own arrogance coming in here thinking we were going to make this structural change to Afghanistan. There were some things I think we could have done early on in the conflict that would have moved the needle a little bit more, maybe, but we didn't do those things. You know, those lessons have probably been documented at the Center for Army Lessons Learned among other places. And as far as, you know, what we were doing there for the last 10 years, or really since since we tracked down and killed Osama bin Laden, what were we trying to accomplish? I'm not sure. I think it was just a nobody wanted to be the one to say, okay, I think we're done here. Yeah. And again, I, I want folks to know, this is not just like the, hey, let's beat up on Biden again. You know, I am so still relieved that Trump is no longer right. at the, the helm of power in this nation. And that was very frightening for years, it was very disturbing for years. It was very stressful, anxiety ridden for years. I don't want that back. And there's, you know, things that I do appreciate about Biden uh, on the face of it. And, you know, there's some things that that concern me about the guy. But I do feel like one of the benefits to Biden, another one that I like, is 
you can criticize the man, right? You can right. say something is wrong and not get back people just simply arguing to defend him, even if they have to change their story in midstream to try and make him okay and make him right. I, that's, I think, yeah. what bothered me about the thread, about the one person on the thread that just kept insisting that this was just the shining best example of a well, military operation ever was, dude, well, you don't have to do this. Like, we really can have a conversation yeah. about it. You don't have to defend it. He doesn't have to be perfect. And this operation can have flaws and it can be okay. We can learn from it. We can examine it. Right. We can talk about it. We can have a conversation and it doesn't have to be Biden is perfect. I don't know. I don't like, what are you afraid of to just talk about what could possibly have been better? As far as a, you know, a non-combatant evacuation operation, um, a NEO, my first introduction to NEO was in Germany because we had the, the non-combatant evacuation order, the whole plan for how to get the dependents out in case, you know, the Red Horde came across the border. You know, that was my first introduction to that. And I had never thought about it before then. I was a first lieutenant in Germany uh, when I was first introduced to this. And prior to that, I thought, oh, yeah, it never occurred to me that you'd want to evacuate all the dependents. But you do. And there were a lot of assumptions associated with that. And looking through that and all the assumptions and everything, and then looking at what happened in Afghanistan, where it was a very dynamic situation, they had to spin that up kind of on the fly because they're trying to vet people for transport out of the country at the same time they're conducting this NEO. And so in terms of what the military did, particularly like the Air Force with flying flights in and out of basically an enemy-held airport, it was fucking phenomenal what they did. They did amazing stuff. The flights were departing from Kabul every 45 minutes, 24-7, to get all those people out of there. And of course, we didn't get everybody out. There was no possible way to do that, probably. And that's probably what was driving some of the panic with people grabbing onto the, the exterior of the aircraft. And so, you know, that's where better communication comes in, where you let people know, hey, if we can't get you out, here's what you do. And you give people something else to do. But, you know, that's it. There were some things that, you know, we can talk about as, as legitimate criticisms. One of them is the fact that, yes, the Biden administration inherited a really crappy deal, but there were some, some really good intelligence pro products that were coming out of the DOD Inspector General's office and the Defense Intelligence Agency that, first of all, alerted everyone, even back, you know, during the Trump administration, that the Taliban wasn't upholding their end of the deal. They were violating the terms of the agreement. And this was coming out once a quarter, starting from when they first signed that agreement. And keep in mind, when the Trump administration executed this agreement with the Taliban and they excluded the Afghan government. That agreement was signed on like the 29th of February of 2020. So think about what was happening at the end of February in 2020. Everybody was focused on China and the fact that, hey, this new pathogen has made its way into the U.S. The next day, Ghani, the, the president of, of Afghanistan, said, hey, you can't negotiate for the release of 5,000 Taliban prisoners. That's not under your authority. These are prisoners of the Afghan government, not the U.S. And he was basically pressured. So by the 10th of March, he was agreeing to, you know, releasing like 1,500 of them at a rate of 100 a day. So basically, the Trump administration was squeezing the Afghan government, which was not a party to these negotiations initially, was squeezing them to release these Taliban prisoners. And so this continued on. And 
and the whole time the DOD inspector general was releasing reports saying Taliban's not adhering to their agreements. They're actually putting al-Qaeda operatives in leadership positions. They're working with terrorists. This is not going as planned. And the Trump administration continued. So then the, the Biden administration takes over. By then, we're down to some 2,500 troops left in the country, which is not enough to secure the country. When you're down to the last 2,000 or so soldiers in the country, you're in a really vulnerable position. So your options are, do I notify the 82nd Airborne Division to get on the planes and go over there right now to add a division? Or do we continue on the path that we're on? They chose to continue on the path to leave Afghanistan and they negotiated for an extension. At the same time, Defense Intelligence Agency and the DOD Inspector General was giving them information that said that the Afghan military was going to fold. And they chose to believe a representative from the Afghan government that said, oh, no, they're going to stand and fight. Well, I kind of depend on our intelligence products, especially the DOD people more than a guy from Afghanistan who has a vested interest in making sure that the U.S. stays as long as possible. They basically chose to believe this guy who was telling them fairy tales instead of relying on their own intelligence products. That was one of the things that reminded me of Trump the most, Mm -hmm. because that's the kind of thing Trump would do. He would dismiss intelligence and go with something that was not nearly as good. When I saw Biden stand up, this was the other thing that really bothered me. When I saw him stand up and basically say, no one saw it coming, like no one saw the Taliban fill in that void as fast as they did. I mean, we had estimates for a couple months to a couple years, but nobody thought 11 days, like no, no, who knew 11 days. Right. And I just thought, wow, you sound just like Trump right now. Because that's the kind of thing Trump would say. He would get up when something shocked him, whether it was really shocking or not, he would be like, who knew? Who knew healthcare was so difficult, right? And it's like, well, if you're listening to your advisors, if you were, if you would listen to the people who are expert in this, you would know that it's a very complicated issue. And when it came to um, him standing there saying nobody saw it coming, I was like, okay, wait a second. We've been there for 20 years. You have the best advisors available and they are probably giving you multiple scenarios right now of things that could have happened, right? I'm sure that you didn't just get one cohesive narrative that you probably got a lot of people saying this could happen, that could happen, the other thing could happen. The fact that you're saying no one saw it coming leaves only two possibilities or I guess a couple of variations on a possibility. Number one, someone saw it coming and didn't tell you which is a problem. Somebody saw it come and told you and you're up here saying they didn't, which is a problem. Or no one saw it coming, which is a problem. There is no non-problem way to see the person in charge get up and say, we did not predict this accurately. It means that something went wrong. You either had no idea that the scenario that actually unfolded was a possibility, which is problematic, Or someone told you and you're throwing people under the bus at a podium publicly as the leader of the free world, or somebody didn't tell you this scenario and it was on the table, but they didn't bring it to your attention, which was, which is also a problem, but you should, there should never be a situation where the president of the United States gets up and says, whoa, that blindsided me. Yeah, that one, it reminded me of the story, you know, in the aftermath of Katrina, when Condoleezza Rice stood up and said, well, nobody could have predicted that levy would fail. And then I think it was um, John Stewart who had a clip of the woman in the yellow rain slicker 
standing on the levee saying, oh yeah, that thing's going to fail. You know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, right? So I don't know what it was, right? I don't know what was behind the, we didn't see it coming, but there is no good explanation for, we didn't see it coming. And again, I was looking at this as a project manager, right? I'm looking at this as if I had to go to my manager and some kind of crap hit the fan and I literally had to walk in and say, we just didn't see it coming. I would not walk in and just say, I didn't see it coming. I would be working with my team to say, why didn't we see this coming? How did we miss this? Because I have to go and explain this to my boss and I'm going to have to explain how the thing that happened, we didn't even think would happen. Like we didn't even think it could, it wasn't even on our radar. How do you explain that to your boss? And literally that's what Biden was doing when he was at that podium was explaining it to his boss, right? His constituents. He was telling the constituency, the American public, I have no idea. We, we were totally clueless. And I'm like, whoa, that's not what you should ever say. Well, and the thing is that I promise you there are military advisors over in the Pentagon right now who are not clueless, who basically had this war gamed out and said, here's what's going to happen. And here's why we know this. Why that information didn't get up to the president, I don't know. There's a fairly sophisticated filtering mechanism that goes into play sometimes. And, you know, maybe that's what happened. It's the whole story about how army policy is made. And it starts out with somebody suggests something to a group of junior enlisted soldiers and they they try it out and they come back and they're like, it's a bucket of shit and it stinks. And so, you know, their sergeants take that information up to the lieutenants and they say, well, you know, it's a vessel fertilizer, the stench of which none may abide. And as it gets further up the chain of command, the language gets more flowery. And by the time it gets up to the policy level, it's a growth producing substance and it's very strong. Because it's it's yeah, a bucket yeah. of shit. No, I, I understand. Like I said, there's a filtering mechanism that goes on. Maybe that's what happened. I don't know. But I know that there's somebody in the Pentagon that read it right and probably had it wargamed about, you know, which provinces were going to fall first and what the timeline was going to be. Might not have been exactly spot on, but it was going to be pretty close. That's what people do. Yeah. You know, and it's called templating the battlefield. And I've done it so many times. That's why I know this happened. This happened. This is is risk management, right? So outside of, you know, in layman's terms, when you're working in a company that isn't the military, you would just say, this is basic risk management, right? You're supposed to Mm -hmm. predict the scenarios. You're supposed to think about what could go wrong. You're supposed to look at what you're going to do as far as work and talk to the people who are going to do the work and talk to them about what kind of problems come up and what could happen. It's somebody's job to say, here's all the things that could go wrong. And so one of the things that went wrong, went really, really wrong, was that there's so much corruption in the Afghan government and in the Afghan you know, national defense forces that basically the troops on the ground hadn't been paid or resupplied. In some cases, they weren't even being fed regularly. They hadn't been paid in months. You know, it wasn't that they were cowards or anything, but they had families to take care of and they just went home, you know, because what are they going to do? They're not even getting paid. They're barely getting fed. They have, you know, they're not getting resupplied with, you know. Oh, yeah. No, and and I'm not, I'm not actually judging them. I'm, what I'm doing is I'm saying that 20 years sitting in this location, you would think that we would have a handle on this is what's probably going to happen. And and the thing is, we knew that we knew that this was going, we knew that this corruption was rampant and it was happening. And I'm sure that given the fact that the Afghanistan government was a sovereign government, there's probably a limited amount that we could do other than say, okay, 
we are going to cut you off. And we're going to, by the way, we're going to leave if you don't pay your troops and do the stuff you're supposed to do. But, you know, that lever only works once in a while. Well, but I mean, and, it's not even about making them be less corrupt. It's just about calculating the corruption into your estimates yeah. of what could go wrong. Like to say, so, hey, it's a very corrupt government. And so here's the shit that's going to happen because of this corruption, right? This, you cannot count on X, Y, and Z because these people have not been paid. They are not loyal because who's loyal to an employer that doesn't pay them, right? right. And this is going to play out a certain way there shouldn't have been an assumption that they're not corrupt, right? If we know there's corruption, if that's like a rampant thing there, and there are many places where that is the case, in reality, if I'm the president and I'm dealing with people's lives and I've got military on the ground and and we've got this life and death situation going on and literally I need to calculate for corruption, I'm going to calculate for corruption. And after 20 years in that country, we should know that the government is corrupt. Yeah, and we did. And and this is, you know, part of the thing that comes out in like Defense Intelligence Agency and DOD IG reports, they're saying, hey, this is a factor. We have to consider this. And the Afghan defense forces are not going to hold, especially in this sector, this sector, and this sector, because we actually knew where it was the worst. But the other thing that we have to look at is by staying in the country for 20 years and fighting the Taliban for 20 years, we basically trained them really well. We gave them 20 years of experience fighting against U.S. military tactics. And so they know small arms tactics as well as any unconventional warfare fighters anywhere in the world. Like I said, there's only a couple thousand Americans left in the country at the end of this. So it's all the Afghan military that they're fighting against. When they came up against them, the uh, Afghan forces had not been as diligent at applying themselves to learning tactics, especially small arms tactics like that. And that gets back to the corruption in their military and their government in general. All of this stuff was, it wasn't a mystery. It wasn't something that we couldn't possibly know ahead of time. Of course, we knew this ahead of time. But for whatever reason, people who were making decisions chose not to do this. Now, at the end of all this, you know, when you realize this is what you're facing, I mean, at that point, the only thing that will counter what we knew we were facing would have been to insert an army division in there and stabilize the situation until we could get out. And in hindsight, maybe that's what we should have done. Yeah, I mean, resourcing it as needed up front would have been better. Obviously, once things started going horribly awry, they did address that pretty quickly. And they got more resources there to handle the situation, which did help. That's good. You know, that's the, hey, that went well. You took action. You realized there was a problem. You took action. You corrected it. That's a good thing. I just know that I would never walk up to my boss and just say, we didn't see this coming. I I mean, that was the thing I think that really bugged me. I could not believe that was coming out of his mouth from a podium. I don't mean that in a Trump way. I don't mean that in a never admit that you didn't know what was going on. I mean, you don't just say you didn't know what was going on. You actually have to go back and research why you didn't know what was going on. And then you go to your boss and you say, we did not predict this because, and then you explain the parameters here, the things that were going on, the things you did calculate, the things you, why you didn't calculate certain things that maybe did play into this. Like you have to have an explanation for how you didn't see this coming. It's not just, we didn't see it coming. That's, that doesn't fly. You would never, ever come to your boss with that and just say, uh, yeah, we just didn't see it, right? Like nobody saw it coming. The end. That's not what you say. You have to come prepared and you have to come to your boss and say, we didn't see it coming. Here's all the things that played into that. And here's how we plan to not make that mistake again. 
Hey, from now on, we know. And sometimes like, for example, maybe something does have a glitch that nobody's ever seen before. Something goes wrong Mm -hmm. that it's just like, whoa, nobody knew that could even happen. Like those airline, those flights that were having all that weirdness with the training when the airlines started going down that one particular plane that had the problems, you know, you start seeing planes drop out of the sky and it's the same model, right? Like, Hey, there's one, there's another, there's wait a second here. And so what do you do? You hey, wait, precaution, we're stopping those flights. Those planes are not going anywhere until we figure out what's going on. You take a look at it, you research it, you say, okay, the company, somebody did raise a flag. Somebody did know there was a problem. The training was inadequate. You come up with that. And it's like, yes, we didn't see it coming, but we should have seen it coming because there were things in place that we did miss. There were you know, stuff that wasn't working right or that worked differently. And the pilots weren't adequately trained to understand it. And that's what caused the problem. And so what we need is more robust training. We need to change out this part, whatever it is. But you come with an explanation, not just, I don't know. You don't -hmm. don't ever come to your boss with, I don't know. You come to your boss with, this is what went wrong. We didn't see it coming. I looked into it and here's the dynamics of what actually happened. And we now have a plan to avoid this in the future. Here's what we would have to do. That's what you do. I yeah. was not inspired with confidence by nobody saw it coming. You know, who knew that did not fly with yeah, me. Yeah, that's not okay. And I fully expect that in the aftermath of this, we're going to get a much more comprehensive understanding of everything. And I believe that. I believe they are doing yeah. retrospectives. I believe they're looking at lessons learned. I believe they're looking at what went well, what didn't go well, what action items do we need to take to fix this in the future? I totally believe that they do that. I would think the military would do that just like any other competent company would do that. And like I said, the army, the army is actually required to do that. I guess I'm less confident that politicians are going to come up with a good answer and far more confident that the army is going to actually examine this. Yeah. And probably the Air Force too. When the, all the after action reports are, are filed with the Center for Army Lessons Learned, I'm going to be very interested in taking a look at that. If you can't Mm -hmm. admit a mistake, you can't learn from it. So the first thing you need to do is to be able to do an autopsy on the whole operation to say what things could have been better. You should be doing that every time, every single operation, there should be a meeting at the end of it where everyone gets together and says what went well, what didn't go well, what action items are required for the future going forward to make sure things get better, that we fix these things that didn't go great. You can almost always find something that you could do better Mm -hmm. next time. And it's interesting that you bring that up because the reason Army doctrine changed to require us to capture our lessons learned like that is because in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, we didn't want to do what we had done during the course of that war, which was to bury the mistakes. No one ever made a mistake. It was always somebody else did something or whatever. You know, no one ever owned a mistake. And to do so was basically to kiss your career goodbye. The army that we fielded in Vietnam, it was a bunch of people who on paper looked perfect, but in reality were incapable of learning anything. You know, we paid a heavy price for that for a long time. You know, we had a pretty hollow army for a while. And I was part of the generation that basically rebuilt the army from scratch because, you know, in the aftermath of Vietnam, there was a lot of anti-war sentiment and it manifested as like anti-military sentiment. 
And the army bore the brunt of that. And it was just the fact that, you know, the army is the biggest of all the branches of the service. And so, you know, we have the, have the largest recruiting mission. And when you have to have to recruit so many people, you feel it when people don't want to join you. And so basically, you know, we started capturing our lessons learned because it was necessary if we were going to overcome the very serious flaws that we had allowed to infect the culture during the Vietnam era. The thing is, though, so, mistakes are opportunities to learn. That's they, what it boils down to. They absolutely are. Right? We and, are human and, beings. We fuck things up. And when you mm-hmm. fuck something up, you have a choice. You can learn from it and do better next time, or you can just fuck it up again when it happens, when you're confronted with the same thing again, right? I mean, that's your option yeah. learn or don't learn. Fail fast, right? Fail fast. Mm-hmm. If you're going to fuck up, fuck up right away. And don't fuck up over like a two-year project. Like fuck up in the first few weeks and then realize you're fucking right. up and then address it. Figure it out. Say, hey, wait, this isn't working. This is really not good. This is hard for people to do. This thing is not you know, helpful. It's not useful. It's not efficient. And correct that. Look at it and correct it and then make it better going forward, right? This is how you improve. I think folks are so taught to fear failure, they can't fail. Right. And, and I think I was taught that, right. So when I was little, I I honestly think corporal punishment is like the biggest way to make a child afraid of making a mistake. If Mm -hmm. you know that if you make a mistake, you're going to get beaten for it. You don't want to make a mistake. And it's so detrimental to people to teach them that making a mistake is so horrible that you have to lie, that you have to hide it, that you have to be afraid to come forward and admit it, right? And there's nothing better than being around an environment where you get to come forward and say, hey, we screwed this thing up and I looked at it and here's a plan that we came up with, try to make it better in the future. And then you are, instead of the person that screwed it up, you're the person that came up with a plan to like fix this, not just for yourself, but for everybody else's team, right? You're making this process better, not just for you, but for other people that are going to have to do this in the future. If you use it as an opportunity, if you make it constructive, yeah, sure. There's times when you're going to screw something up and you can't fix it. But that situation is so rare on a day-to-day basis. The number of mistakes you make and the level of mistakes you make are almost all going to be correctable. They're all going to be things that right. you have the time to breathe and to relax and to figure out how to do it better and to not make that mistake again in the future. Most mistakes are not the life and death sort of life changing moment that you can never get back that you regret for the rest of your life. That is not the normal level of failure. And the thing about it is, is most of these mistakes, you can pretend it didn't happen or that you didn't make a mistake, but everybody knows it's not hidden. So anybody looking at, at what happened in Afghanistan, I can acknowledge the fact that it was a phenomenal achievement. We have never had an evacuation of non-combatants from a combat zone at a hostile airfield that went as smoothly as that. And yet, there were things we can still do better. And those things, looking at them through my lens as a military officer, those things are fairly obvious from this point. And so there's no point in denying that those things occurred. But what we can do now is document them and use them as a way of vicariously giving future generations this experience so they don't make those same mistakes. Right. And that's the best we can do. We can't go back and undo the past, but we can make sure that other people can learn from our mistakes. I think that's ultimately what's going to happen. 
at least I hope so. And, you know, interestingly enough, one of the assignments I had that I was privileged to lead a group of people in an organization that conducted what we call lanes training in the Army. A lane is essentially a specified scenario, and it's for generally platoon and company-sized elements. And we would put these units through this scenario and give the leadership and the soldiers the opportunity to experience something that will be very similar to what they'll see in a combat situation. And the idea behind that is fail early, fail often, and learn from it, just exactly what you were talking about. At the end of of the exercise, we'd go back to conduct an after-action review. And in that after-action review, as the lanes chief, it wasn't my job to point fingers at people and say, you screwed that up and you did okay on that one, or you guys are totally hosed up on this. Not my job. My job is to ask leading questions that help the participants in that discover the truth. Right. About it's called their it's coaching. You're coaching them. Basically drawing them out, getting them to describe what they saw. It's a little bit threatening to people at first. So the first one is usually a little rough because people are afraid to speak up. They kind of sugarcoat stuff a little bit. And then as we move through it, when they find out that this is like a no, no blame area, you can just say what you saw. We always coach them to say, say this in objective terms. Don't cast blame. Don't assume motives. Don't assume ill intent on anyone's part. And at the end of this, you ask them, so what do you think? Did you achieve the standard or not? And it's interesting because they are really good at figuring out whether they've achieved the Army standard for that exercise or not. Mm-hmm. I have, have never had an Army unit go through one of those and say, oh, yeah, we totally met the standard when, in fact, they had not. And you just have to give people the opportunity to discover this in a way that it's not about protecting your reputation or blaming somebody else. Or, or Well, and then the other question anything. is letting, you know, working with them to try and encourage them to figure out what support they need to meet the standard. Right. So you right. didn't meet the standard here. What do you think we could do? Do we need to train more often? Do we need to train mm-hmm. differently? Do we need to, you know, like how, how do we want to do this? How do, what do we want to change up for the next period or the next increment that you think would affect the thing that held you back? What could we do to support you building up that thing that held you back so that you could do better next time we do this? Yeah. And then we'll try it again. At the end of every one of these, if they determined that they had not met the standard, their next step was to regroup and go to the retraining area where they would address whatever training needs they had. Mm -hmm. And then the leader of that organization would come back to me when they were ready to go again, say, okay, we're ready to go down the lane again. You know, I would set up my observer controllers and, and send them down the lane again. Once they finish that one, we go right back to the after action review and we talk about it again. (laughs) As long as you can recognize, it's not just about failure as being sort of this amorphous, undefined thing. It's about understanding that failure has causes, right? You have to understand there's a reason why you failed at something. And if you can identify how you failed and why you failed, then you can start making a plan to succeed at it. Or maybe you need Mm -hmm. to look at it and say, hmm, this isn't the thing. Maybe I need to go do this other thing instead of this thing I'm trying to do, right? It's just about making friends with failure and looking at it as, oh, okay, so that didn't work. Why didn't it work? How do I deal? How do I respond to that? Do I want to keep trying? If I do want to keep trying, how do I make it work better? What's the part that's screwing me up? Where's the problem happening? Beyond not fearing failure, seeing it as one of life's greatest teachers just do the things, do them in small increments. You know, you don't have to eat the whole meal in one bite. Try a little piece of it and see how it goes. And if it goes well, try another little piece, right? Let's just 
do a little step at a time and see how it's going. Well, hey, it's after eight o'clock and <laughs> I need to get going here. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much. And like I said, people love you and they love Phil. So I'm sure yeah. folks are going to be glad to hear your voice. It's been a while. Yeah. Well, thanks for inviting me on. And I really enjoy uh, doing this with you. And I, I still look forward to the day when we can <laughs> meet in person and kill a bottle of wine. I think that'll be great. I, I look forward to that too. It will have to happen. Fingers crossed, man. All my friends are vaxxed. Right? Yeah, so. I'm vaxxed. Well, All hey, right. you have a great night. And thanks again for coming. Yes, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.